90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Oh, I'm trucking along here. We've been getting some good thunderstorms, so that's uh, nice for the meteorologist in me. And not bad hail, which is nice for the homeowner in me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there have been a few tornadoes down in your area, though. Uh, yeah, yeah, um, further away from us, so that's, so that's nice. Um, it was just some good Oklahoma thunderstorms. I'm going to keep rubbing it in, because I know you're going to miss them. <laughs> mm-hmm, I do. <laughs> uh, how about you? What have you been working on? You had a busy week giving presentations, right? Oh, yeah. No, it was, it was quite busy, so I recorded early last week. Uh, so the, on last Tuesday, I gave uh, what's called the Dynas Lecture, which is a memorial lecture for one of our professors here. So I basically gave one of the 45-minute department colloquia talks. Ooh, those are always scary. Yeah, it was, but I think it went relatively well. I guess I'm not the best judge of that since I wasn't in the audience. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) You didn't have any uh, red slides with red text or anything, right? (laughs) No, and nobody threw anything at me. (laughs) Well, I guess that's a plus then. Yeah, but no, I had a lot of fun doing it, and the whole thing is actually on YouTube. Not the greatest video quality. It's a cell phone sitting on a desk at the front, (laughs) Uh, but the whole thing is on there if you want to hear about slow earthquakes uh, and how we are reproducing them in the lab. That's all I talked about, and let's see, the title was something, oh yeah, uh, Taking It Slow, Frictional Dynamics of Slow Earthquakes. (laughs) Oh boy. Um since you brought that up, uh, I have a future fun paper planned when I can get a hold of this journal, which is the use of Bob Dylan lyrics in uh, <laughs> in scientific <laughs> paper titles. So, Oh, you should Sorry. have seen I think I had a list of about 20 potential titles for this talk. <laughs> and they, they ranged from really boring and serious to absolutely absurd plays on words. <laughs> I mean, slow earthquakes are pretty absurd anyway, but um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, excellent. Um, I know what I'm doing to my next coffee break. I'll just take a look at that. It's a long coffee break, yeah. <laughs> hey, you know how it is. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> um, so for this week's show, following your busy week and me, you know, just sitting around and listening to poor students since we're coming towards the end of the semester, everyone's starting to freak out. Um, I thought that we'd do this really fun show, which sprang up from an idea on a field trip that I was once on. Yeah, and this is a neat idea. Uh, <laughs> I, I can say maybe I'm glad that I wasn't in one of the vans <laughs> on this way back uh, from, because it was Galveston, right? So that's quite a, quite a drive from Galveston to Norman. Oh, yeah, it really is. And it's a really quick field trip. You're down there looking at modern plastic processes. And it's a long slog back, and one of the TAs and I, who had probably been up too late the night before, if we'd slept at all, not sure, and uh, we were trying to keep each other awake over the walkie-talkies, and so what we did was we played the Geology ABC game. So <laughs> there aren't a lot of billboards on the way from Galveston to Norman, so you basically only have, you know, Dallas and and then, well, that's it. Um, yeah, there's so not a lot of anything on the way from Galveston exactly. to Norman. Exactly. So you can't play like ABC game, the normal driving ABC game. So we played geology ABCs and we did this for, and I'm not kidding, at least five hours. Um, And what I learned was that N is really hard and that there are a lot of really cool geology words. So I thought that we would play that today, um, focusing on geology. 
Yeah, and we will link something for every letter in the show notes. And we're not going to go into really any depth because we don't want this to be a very long show. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. I mean, you know, we can explain a few of them because if, you know, you're not a geoscience inclined, well, no, it probably if you're not a geologist, some of these, you're not going to know what the heck we're talking about, Um, which is part of the fun of this too. So, yeah. But I gave you the uh, I gave you the honors of starting, John, because I really just wanted D. That was all. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. So I'm going to start with A, and A is for anticline, because anticlines are one of my favorite structural features. Just because it's amazing to me that you can have rocks fold into why, kind of sinuous shapes. Why you gotta hate on synclines though? Well, I mean, anticlines, A, it's like <laughs> okay. the first thing. I don't know. I like them. Synclines are okay, too, but I didn't... Well, I guess I did get S as well, but... Oh, yeah, I see yeah. how you are. So anticlines are just like John said. They're A's, but there's a more specific definition to them, and it has to do with the age of rocks, right? Yeah, so if you think about it, if you have... Uh, Rocks being deposited, generally there's older on the bottom, younger on the top, right? As things get layered. And then you fold it into the shape of an A, or if you want to get technical, convex up. uh, (laughs) Then, And you erode off the top. So say you have some kind of stream or something like that. The rocks in the center are going to be the oldest, and it gets younger as you go towards the limbs or the outside of the anticline. Exactly. I always like to uh, trick students on on quizzes about this because if you see that shape you say anticline and i mean it's kind of shaped like an a as well but nope it's got to have that age thing or else it's just called an antiform right tricky yes and these can be at a variety of scales you can have them you know folds that are inches or you can have folds that are miles oh yeah which is the coolest part really yeah about them. And I think we've got a future show. Well, we probably have a future show for most of these coming up, actually. (laughs) But I know we both like to talk about bendy rocks, so we'll probably do that soon. Yeah, it's just cool that you can bend rocks. So anyway, what's next? Okay, so B is for Breccia, because it's fun to say. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, you know, I work on a lot of Breccias, and what they are are broken up rocks so again tectonics i think you'll find that our big love in geology is tectonics i think that's fair to say for both of us right yeah i I would say so yeah so um there there are no geochemistry words in here because we don't know them in other words exactly (laughs) (laughs) and there never will be um so a breccia is just pointy pointy broken up bits of rocks and it's basically consolidated into another rock. And these can happen in all kinds of places. So most commonly, you'd get brecciated rocks along faults, right? So you're rubbing two rocks back and forth, and they brecciate or break into these pointy pieces. Um, but you can also get them in, say, impact craters. You get lots of breccia as a bolide impacts the ground. It breaks up the rock into really pointy pieces because if they were moved a long way and were exposed to elements and eroded, they would become a conglomerate, which is what you call that rock with round pieces. So you get lots of brushes in place in impact craters, which was why I put that one. Yeah, and so I think brushes normally, 
you don't really have much transport of the material, right? Because if you do transport it, it gets rounded pretty quickly. Right, exactly. Because these are really pointy chunks of rock that are often, you know, they're really poorly sorted. So that means you've got all different sizes and that sort of rock just doesn't hold up to a lot of transportation. So these are sort of in place, but there are all kinds of different processes that can create them, which makes them really unique. All right. Well, I guess that brings it back to my turn then for the letter C. And C is for Coulomb failure. (laughs) I think I could have guessed that you were going to do this one. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I could have gone more Coulomb failure. Either one. I had M too. That is true. That is is true. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So now this isn't a rock or a structural feature, but it's what you do, which is break rocks, right? Yeah. So the Coulomb failure envelope or the Coulomb failure failure relation basically just says that if you know something about the the frictional properties of the rock or something called the angle of internal friction, they're related, uh, and the cohesion of the rock, then for a given normal stress, I can tell you where in shear strength it will begin to yield. Right. And so this is, was this modeled first or is it straight from empirical data? This is purely empirical. And I seem to remember something about this is dangerous. I didn't look any of this up. Uh, <laughs> but some of, some of the very early work on this had to do with things like launching wooden ships uh, and that kind of thing. So it's more of an engineering relation early on. Right. Right. Because when will materials or the interface between materials fail? When can you move things? Right. Because anything that has any sort of internal strength is sort of subject to these rules. So. We have to use it for rocks. (laughs) Well, and every structural student will be familiar with drawing more circles and finding when they touch this more Coulomb failure criterion that they get uh, a a failure of the rock at a certain angle. So more circles or uh, 3D more plots as well if you want to get really, (laughs) really complicated and nasty. And that's more M-O-H-R, not just an abundance of circles. Y- yes, yes. M-O-H-R. Although they are both of those things. So Coulomb failure criterion, that's C. Excellent. Um, and D is for dikes. Yay. And this <laughs> is near and dear to your heart because you worked on them for your PhD. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, I really wanted to spell them with a Y, um, the, you know, the European way, because um, not only did I work on sandstone or clastic dikes for my PhD, I also worked on it as an undergraduate project. So it was kind of cool that my whole geology career came full circle in that way because I looked at these sandstone dikes in Proterozoic Basement Rock in Scotland as an undergraduate. Um, I got to publish that and got me started on the academic path, I think. And then um, the first chapter of my PhD is on sandstone dikes that are closer to home um, that are in the Pikes Peak Granite in the Front Range in Colorado. Yeah. And, but, well, okay, so those are atypical dikes. <laughs> Generally, we think of dikes as being uh, intrusions of magma. So magma wedging apart rocks and squeezing in and then cooling. Yeah, but that's the normal version. I'm more interested in these dikes that are probably injected. Some of them are injected from above, and then some of them, like the ones I looked at in Scotland, are just gravity-driven. So when the Iapetus Ocean began to open up, it was an extensional environment caused a lot of fractures and the unconsolidated sands on top just float into those fractures and now you've got sands stuck inside proterozoic basement rock um 
So it's not as easy in Colorado, actually. The mechanism is still unknown. And a lot of people uh, look at these dikes. The outcrop, the main outcrop, is just south of Denver. And then they stretch all the way down into Colorado Springs. And they're just these really enigmatic structures because there's no rocks left that, you know, you can see that have flowed in there. So they don't know where the sand came from, how it got there. It happened a really long time ago. That's what paleomagnetism tells us. And it's really cool because it's one of those un unsolved mysteries of geology which is right. most of geology <laughs> it's true <laughs> um now i could have guessed this one from a mile away too your e <laughs> yeah yeah i thought about coming up with something else but no e is for earthquake <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> i don't know how much explanation we really need here but <laughs> when you have movement on a fault so a fault fails the rocks slide relative to each other it produces an earthquake. And generally what we think of as an earthquake is the shaking that results, so the, the seismic radiation. And mm-hmm. it turns out only about 10% of the energy released in an earthquake goes to creating seismic radiation. Wow. So that's, that. <laughs> that is your fun earthquake fact, that all the buildings that get knocked down, all that's only from 10% of the energy. The rest of it goes into crushing and heating mostly. Uh-huh. So into making brushes. Into making brushes and melt layers, yeah. Wow, oh, super exciting. Yeah. 90%, no kidding. Wow. Yeah, hmm. yeah, it's an amazing number, actually. That So I'm guessing that that is also empirically derived. Yeah, that's just kind of a rule of thumb. Of course, it's different for every situation. Yes, obviously. Right. Um, That's really cool. I didn't think I'd learn anything new about that, but thank you. Yeah, so there you go. <laughs> e is for earthquake. Uh, but what's next? What What did you get for F. Well, F, I couldn't leave leave this one out since I do a lot of mapping lately. And so F is for facies. And all that is is a mappable unit of rock. Okay? And it has a specific characteristic. So it doesn't have to be like a formation or a member, although certainly those are different facies. But a certain formation can change. So say at one time... You're depositing sand on a beach, water goes up, and so you get maybe less sand and more sort of really fine layers. It's a facies change. Yeah, so if you can say that this rock is green and fine-grained and well-sorted, and that this other rock is slightly less green and more angular and maybe not as well-sorted, those are different facies. Right, exactly. Um, so we always sort of learned it as, you know, a mappable unit. So something that has a specific group of characteristics that you could put down on a map and say, these rocks over this area have these specific characteristics. So that's a facies. And anything outside of those characteristics represents a change of facies. And, you know, this is, you talk about this constantly in sedimentology and stratigraphy, really. Um, stratigraphy is awash with ridiculous amount of vocabulary um yes but this is this is one that gets thrown around a lot and sometimes thrown around incorrectly so yeah well all right so g g is for gpr or ground penetrating radar yay (laughs) this is my favorite geophysical tool i love it so much just because i actually know a lot about it (laughs) (laughs) yes so gpr is you take a radar generally in the hundreds of megahertz, uh, but that can vary depending on exactly what you're using it for. And you shoot these polarized radio waves down into the ground, 
and measure their returns coming back. And what you see are contrasts in the dielectric constant of the material. So kind of like seismic, you can map different layers of rock and different structures and find things underground with GPR. Or really high-frequency GPR, you can do things like map cracks in concrete. Uh, a lot of civil engineers use it for that. Uh, yeah, I didn't know those existed because, um, you know, we use fairly large antenna GPR, but they've got really tiny antenna GPR that do that sort of thing. So, you know, you go stick it on a bridge and see how well your concrete is holding up, which is terrifying to me to think about. Yeah, so the, the higher the frequency, the smaller the antenna, the finer the resolution, but mm -hmm. the less penetrating distance. Right, and exactly. In the Earth, we generally care about going at least many meters, if not tens or hundreds of meters. Uh, whereas in an engineering application, if you go a couple centimeters into the concrete, that might be all you need. Right. Um, they also use GPR to do things like look for uh, tunnels, caves, or bodies in murder mysteries. Uh, yeah, that one is very frequently cited. Um, we've used our GPR to look at, say, crossbeds of um, fairly recent river deposits where the Canadian River just south of town here had evolved away and there were some old dunes and you could actually see the crossbeds in them using that. Um, I know they get used in ice caves. That's kind of cool too. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's one of my favorite geophysical tools. It's really easy to use. And plus, I really like radar, so that's probably why. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, what did you have next? Uh, it's funny because I always talk about, when I'm talking about sedimentary rocks, I always say to my students that I hate carbonate rocks because they're very hard to talk about. Um, and then yet, I keep getting drawn back to them. <laughs> and so <laughs> my H is for halomita, which is this little type of green algae. And it's called the cactus algae sometimes, too. So it's got these little segments, and it helps make carbonate in the carbonate factory. Hmm. Yeah. So I have this link in here to the Nature paper that talks about how they produce carbonate. Because for a long time, you didn't know how all this carbonate production was happening. Because it's not all animals. It comes from somewhere else, right? And so right. these little algae help to fix it. But actually, this is also sort of one of those mysteries. They don't... It's still not super clear about how these algae do it like we know they're responsible for making a lot of carbonate but the exact sort of mechanism is still not not really well understood um so it's halomita and penicillus which is like a shaving brush looking little algae and um all these little guys that hang out in the carbonate factory and they make lots of carbonate mud hmm. yeah I yeah, didn't know this cool. existed at all until you put this in the. <laughs> <laughs> this um, yeah, the, I thought I thought here. I might, um, I thought I might get you on that one. When uh, you go to any carbonate class that has a field trip, you will see them. There are all over the Keys. I saw them out on the uh, Bahama platform, and they're just they're everywhere, and they're responsible for so much deposition. And it's cool that you know we're still sort of not exactly sure how. Hmm. Yeah. Okay, let's see here. So I is for induced polarization. This I, I have several geophysical techniques in my list. <laughs> yes, you do. Uh, <laughs> I, I said that this was a geology, not a meteorology uh, ABC. <laughs> oh, no, this isn't meteorology, though. Well, yeah, I just think of polarization and radar. But yeah, Okay, know. so in this technique, you're putting current into the ground, some kind of controlled current waveform with electrodes, 
And then at different electrodes, you're measuring the the gradient in the potential field, which is more commonly known as the voltage across those electrodes. And by Mm -hmm. doing this for multiple different spacings, uh, and different looking at the time response of the system to different current waveforms that you put in, you can extract subsurface properties. And it's really good at doing things like mapping fluids and hydrocarbons. So it's a technique that the industry uses a lot. Mm. Um, is this like amplitude versus offset sort of business? Uh, not exactly, really. <laughs> hey, come on now. That's not, that, use that for the same thing. Um, so you can use these sort of different... Um, you use these different techniques to sort of look at different features, right? Because some techniques are good at looking at, say, different changes in rocks, and then some are good at talking about fluid flow. So you said that this one is a fluid sort of thing? Yeah, I mean, it is sensitive to rock properties, but it's particularly good at picking out uh, where fluids are. And I have not used this technique. I've seen people use it and talk about it, uh, different colloquial speakers and that kind of thing. So that's really where my intimate knowledge of it ends. Uh-huh. And I can just say that I've seen it. It looks pretty interesting, and I'd like to have a chance to work on an, an IP survey sometime or maybe just build some IP gear so I can actually learn how it really works in detail. Uh, I assumed you already had. I'm actually quite disappointed right now. Well, so I've built some <laughs> resistivity gear that is right. similar, but I inject uh, a – well, I injected basically a DC – voltage ah, gotcha okay and then so i measure the current that flows and then i measure the potential across a couple of different electrodes we actually use that to locate a grave site uh several years ago there's an article on that i'll link in the show notes oh wow interesting okay um so bringing us to j and j is for jadeite hmm mineralogy <laughs> I always, I always think jadeite sounds like a made-up name. <laughs> but jadeite is really weird. So it's this uh, pyroxene mineral. I mean, if you really want to get into it, it's NaAlSi206. If you want to get there, it's <laughs> uh, pretty hard on most hardness scale. But the cool thing about jadeite is that it is found in metamorphic areas and so you commonly not commonly it's actually very uncommon um it's found in subduction zones Hmm. yeah um so it's kind of cool it gets all the fluids and the really high t and p that you find in subduction zones um helps to create jadeite but it's pretty uncommon like i said but a lot of jadeite is used for all kinds of different um sort of indigenous peoples used it to carve things. Okay, so a lot of yeah. these sort of green colored things that you would see like commonly from the Mayas or in China, it's made out of jadeite. And so that one is really rare as opposed to just jade, which is, you know, also rare, but less rare. Um, so it's kind of neat. Uh, you'd be very familiar with it. I'll link in a picture to some uh, Mayan carvings made out of jadeite. It's pretty cool. Awesome. Yeah. Okay. K is for Nick Point. <laughs> sounds, this sounds like a graphing term. Yeah. So I actually think these are fascinating. It, it's a geomorphological term. Oh. Oh. Yeah. Mm, and yeah, I know where you're going now. <laughs> so if there's a sh- sharp change in the channel slope of a river, yep. 
That's a nick point. And that is a really fancy way of saying waterfall. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) And these are cool because they can move. So there's what we call headward erosion of waterfalls. Mm -hmm. Uh, But you can also have, and we have somebody here at Penn State that has been looking at nick points uh, inside glaciers where there are water paths flowing from the surface to the base of a glacier. Mm-hmm. and actually been mapping how the nick points move through time. And there's a really interesting set of physics behind this. And it's kind of cool to look at it in ice because the whole process happens a lot faster than it does with rocks and waterfalls. Uh, that's kind of cool. I just talked about glaciers in class today, and I don't think people believed me when I talked about rivers flowing underneath glaciers. Yeah. So hmm. there you go. Nick points are basically where the waterfall is, that change in slope, and they can move through time. Uh, that's cool. Um, so <laughs> I will admit, I did want to talk about my classic dykes, but I was also excited to get L because this <laughs> is the greatest, like one of those indelibly seared into my memory geology <laughs> field trips was we had a very, very demanding mineralogy teacher, Dr. London, who still scares me to this day, even though <laughs> he's my colleague and his office is right beside me. I will never call him anything but Dr. London. And uh, <laughs> he took us on a field trip when we were taking an ore minerals class. And we go to this rock shop and I pick up this rock outside and he's like, oh, Shannon, do you know what that is? You know, I'm like, no, I, I don't know. I look at classic rocks. And he goes, that's a leverite. And he walks away. It's <laughs> <was> like, Okay. <laughs> And so I carry it with me. And he goes, no, no, no. That's lever right. I'm like, what? Should I not be touching it? What's the deal? And he goes, lever right there. (laughs) 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 Um, And so I've heard since then, I've heard many geologists call rocks lever rights. And it's just fantastic. (laughs) And it means it's not worth picking up. You might think it's cool, but it's not. So lever right there. I I have not heard that one before. Oh, really? (laughs) Since I am not a... uh... A field person that much, but I like it. Uh, yeah, it was really funny. Um, but I, I have heard a lot of people say it, so it's pretty great. I don't know if it's just Dr. London's like influence spreading throughout geology, which it might be, but yeah. So I use that one on my students too. What is this? Ah, leverite. Nice. It's the, the leverite facies. Yes, exactly. Combining terms. All right. So M. M is for moho. Of course. <laughs> so the Mohorovic, Mohorovic, uh, there's a bunch of f- funny pronunciation marks on this. Uh, yeah, not very good on your Russian, are you? <laughs> no, discontinuity. And so we all just call it the Moho. It's actually yeah. named after the Croatian scientist that discovered it in 1909. And it is the boundary between the crust and the mantle. So 1909, I mean, no one's ever been down to the Moho. How was this discovered? Oh, seismology. Looking <laughs> at the wiggles. So, <laughs> uh, in 1909, really? It was, yeah, there, it was good enough processing then to be able to figure this out. Oh, I mean, this was purely looking at paper or scratched glass. Uh, wow. Yeah. So, what what it turns out is when you go from the crust to the mantle, there's a very sharp transition in velocity. Right. So, above the moho. You might have a P-wave velocity of 6.7 to 7.2 kilometers a second. Mm -hmm. And below the moho, 
you have 7.6 to 8.6 kilometers a second. And it's mm-hmm. really rare in geophysics to not have ranges that overlap. Uh, <laughs> so, so you definitely know where it is. Yeah, and this is a pretty thin. I mean, we're talking about a transition zone that's maybe half a kilometer. And so, I mean, there's a lot of weird geology that takes place at the Moho. And I know there's a lot of talk about sort of the minerals that occur right there and all the, you know, very specific, like right at the Moho conditions. That's, I find really interesting as well. Yeah. And it's related to all kinds of neat stuff, like you said, that goes on and how they actually picked it out of the seismograms in 1909 is pretty cool, but we're going to have to leave it right there. Oh, <laughs> way to way to bring that back around. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so keeping with my tectonics obsession for whatever reason right now, um, I picked for N, because N is the hardest. You'll find out when you have to do N. Um, nap. Okay. So, like, when your carpet is really thin, it... No, okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> this is a structural geology term, right? And what a NAP is, and this is N-A-P-P-E, um, it's a thrust sheet. Okay, but we have thrust sheets all over the place. Why don't we call them that? Well, it's a thrust sheet that has been moved more than two kilometers. Hmm. Yeah. So from it's, its actu- original it's position. actually a geology thing with a number on it. That's I, I we rarely <laughs> quantify anything. <laughs> um, exactly. And so a thrust fault is a reverse fault, right? So you find these in compressional regimes, and they're really um, their angle of thrusting is quite low. That's why it's called a thrust and not just a reverse fault. Um, and you can move in really big mountain building events. I mean, you can move some of these thrust sheets, especially with a super low angle fault, quite a ways. Um, I remember seeing this in the Northern Rockies is where I sort of first learned about this. And there's, the, I've got a link into the sort of the classic picture of a nap right there. Um, and so it's a cool thrust feature. And you know that it's been moved a long way because you've got to do all your geology, right? And understand that this rock doesn't belong here, right? It's an alochthonous block of rock that's moved a long way. It's sitting on top of this stuff that it shouldn't be on top of. Um, so it's kind of neat. Yeah. Ooh, alochthonous. That's a good A word. Ah. Yeah. You're welcome. <laughs> Aloch- alochthonous and autochthonous. Those, oh, yeah. yeah, man. I remember doing a salt tectonics class, and that's alochthonous and autochthonous. It was... It was rough. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay. Ooh. Ooh. Oh. <laughs> um, okay. Hold on. I was really proud of. I was really proud of you for your O pick. Yeah. So O is for ooids because it's the only thing I could think of that started with O. <laughs> See, I'm gonna go with orthogonal projection diagram, but we'll talk about that later. <laughs> wow okay that seems like yeah we, we should have flipped these um uh yeah you pick a rock i'm so proud <laughs> yeah. so ooids are these really small grains that are coated in carbonate so it could be a piece of a shell or a sand grain or something that gets these layers of carbonate built up on the outside of it and it makes these nice little coated uh, structures that are less than two millimeters in diameter if they're ooids and they That's can perfect. Form a rock called uh, oolite. Is that right? 
Yes, yep. Oolite yeah. or an oolitic, say you could have ooids and a whole bunch of other stuff, and then you've got an oolitic pack stone or grain stone or something like that. Um, there's a number on ooids too. I, I like these because there are some pictures in the link in the show notes. Uh, looking at them in thin section, they look like art. Oh, they do. Um, in this Ordovician rock here in southern Oklahoma that we look at, the ooids are all sourced by this um, silica. So these form offshore, obviously. And if you have, say, a storm or something and you get sort of a wind direction, you can get all the silica that blows from the land into the water. And these ooids are all just these perfectly round beautiful quartz grains and when you cut the rock open you can even see that and so it's really neat because you've got these clear quartz grains and some of them are a little frosted which is cool too that are rounded concentrically with all this carbonate it is super awesome yes (laughs) sorry to step on your ooids but uh (laughs) i got so excited (laughs) yeah well that's okay because the next one i could have guessed from a mile away (laughs) P is for paleomagic. Paleomagnetism, obviously, I even put an exclamation point. Um, We've already had half of a show about it. Well, no, a a show that still requires a part two because there's a lot to talk about Earth's ancient magnetic field and how it gets trapped in rocks. So, yay, paleomag. Looking at old magnetic fields and crossing your eyes on Ziderfeld diagrams. <laughs> oh, man. That That's would be a good days. Z word, too. Oh, it would be. Yeah. Dang it. I have Z, too. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we should have had this discussion beforehand. Um, so, Q, this is pretty funny. Yeah, so, Q, <laughs> I picked quicksand. <laughs> um, so, I... That's... That's great. It just reminds me of cartoons or something, but, I mean, you know, quicksand's a real thing. It, it really is, though... Its role in sucking you down and killing you is greatly exaggerated. Um, sort of, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it's dangerous, it's, but it's yeah. not uh, it's not certain death as it would be. It is not certain disease. death. Yes, if you freak out, it definitely is. Um, we have quicksand along the, this Canadian River that I've been talking about here, and um, along the Arkansas River as well through Tulsa, and a person dies every five years or so yeah and so quicksand is cool because you, have you ever made that stuff it's called um ooblick, i think is the the name <laughs> where you, you mix cornstarch and water yeah non-newtonian fluids yeah <laughs> so ooblick, when you hit it it becomes like a solid and if you right. move through it slowly it behaves like a liquid right okay well quicksand is a sheer thinning non-newtonian fluid Ooh-hoo-hoo. So it, it's kind of semi-solid or jelly when it's just sitting there. But when you change the stress, in fact, when you change the stress on it by less than a percent, the viscosity drops through the floor and it be- acts like a liquid. Yeah. So that's why if you freak out when you're getting sucked in by quicksand, you're just going to get, you know, go faster, basically. And there is a lot of water in it. And if you're, you know, churning this up and you should be, you should be able to float in it. If you have right. that that presence of mind, uh, but yeah, so Q quicksand, shear thinning, non-Newtonian fluids—it's neat stuff. 
Man, I was just going to throw out lithofaction and thought that that was a big word to use for quicksand, but no, you brought out oobleck. I liked it. That was good. <laughs> um, so, man, it is. I am in a structural state of mind. It's because we've been doing geologic cross-sections in my class, and so R is for rift. Ripping, th- ripping continents apart. Uh, yeah, exactly. So I had a nap, which is, you know, a compressional regime and so rift is the opposite of that and it is a extensional regime and we talk a lot about rifts we have a super ancient rift here in oklahoma um back in the cambrian that created our big igneous wichita mountains and so we talk a lot about rifts and failed rift arms and successful rift arms and just all the cool or extensional structures that you can find there and plus, most of them have volcanoes associated with them, and that's always fun. Yeah. Okay, let's see. S. S is for <laughs> seismic. Uh, so disappointed. <laughs> yeah. And this could be any kind of, you could be doing seismology, like looking at uh, earthquake sources, or you could be doing active source, so seismic reflection or refraction studies, where we... But it's all monitoring the propagation of seismic waves through the Earth uh, and doing that in different ways for different purposes to map something about the structure of what we can't see. Yep. And I'm sure we'll talk way more about that in the future. Yeah, and seismic (laughs) reflection, especially refraction some, are used uh, not only in academics but also significantly in industry. That's where a lot of money finding oil goes is for these large seismic reflection surveys. Oh, yeah. And there's lots of interpretation to be had there. So this is why geophysics is important for geologists, right? And why geology is important for geophysicists. Exactly. Yes. Um, So T is for tektites. Yay, tektites. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So these are super great. Um, Also impact-related because I love that too. Uh Um, So these are little blebs of sort of glass, basically, that are the frozen melt products of the rocks that get hit by a big bolide, right? So if you got a big enough bolide, or most bolides, that impacts the earth, it's going to melt the rocks that it's hitting, and they splash just like water. And what they splash and form into are these little glassy balls. They don't look like glass, right? They're black or gray or really dark brown. Um, and they just come from these molten, which is actually what the word comes from, the word Greek for molten, um, little blebs that are associated with meteorites. Hey, that's a, that's a cool one. Mm-hmm. And they're kind of like, um, they kind of look like what people would call Apache's tears, too, which are or Pele's tears, which are just these little obsidian balls that you get out of volcanic eruptions. So they can look very similar um, in appearance as well. Hmm. Yeah. Nice. All right. Well, U, U is for uniformitarianism. All right. The present is the key to the past. Exactly. It says that <laughs> natural laws operate the same now as they have in the past. So we can look at something and how it forms now and say that that's probably what environment or how it happened in the past. It's the key to all geology. And if it's wrong, we're just kidding ourselves. 
<laughs> now, there's actually many instances where uniformitarianism is wrong, um, which is super interesting. And that class I taught last semester, we spent an entire class period talking about, like, when is uniformitarianism wrong? Because it is, just like you said, it's sort of this law of how we do geology. But it's not always the case, right? Um, and this is a really cool history of science if you're interested in the history of science at all. The whole uniformitarianism versus catastrophism and Neptunism. Yeah. Awesome. And we, we've talked about this a little bit on a past show as mm-hmm. well. So yeah. I don't remember what number, but we'll, we'll find it and link it in. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so that's uh, super cool and also unexpected. I thought you'd come up with something weird for that, but look at you doing geology again. Yeah, I know. All right, <laughs> so what do you have for V? Uh, v is for veins, not the veins in your body, which we'll talk about in the fun paper. Um, <laughs> yeah. But veins that form in rocks. Um, I talk a lot and do a lot of work about fluid flow because fluids can create little magnetic minerals and trap the Earth's magnetic field. But also fluids that flow through rocks can create veins. And so we look at a lot of different veins, what's filling them, what's associated with them, what does this mean about the past history of the rock in general. And by doing that, we can start to create the diagenetic history of that rock. So everything that's happened to it since it became a rock and veins are a big part of that history. Yeah, and veins are also important uh, in fault processes as well. But that's an entirely another story oh yeah (laughs) Uh, (laughs) all right w w was actually harder than i thought uh i'm super excited about this one this is a good one there are a lot of minerals that i could have picked but let's face it i would have been finding something that i kind of remembered from mineralogy and going and looking (laughs) it up uh (laughs) so i picked wadi which... I'm super excited about this. I talk about this in all of my classes. <laughs> so a wadi is a, uh, a riverbed that's generally dry and only contains water when it's the rainy season or a flood. Right. So in the desert southwest here in North America, we'd call them arroyos. Right. And most people would just say dry riverbed, but arroyo or wadi <laughs> sounds a lot neater. Oh, it totally does. Um, I'm totally taking over this link in the show notes from you. And um, we look at every every semester, we look at this river of rocks, which is what the translation is um, on this YouTube video. And it's this wadi that gets overtaken by all these rocks coming down. And it's just an unbelievable flood video. Yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> you know exactly which one I'm talking uh-huh. about. <laughs> I'm just doing your job for you. Um, X is the first thing that I thought of. I wouldn't be able to think of another X, and this is Xenolith. Oh, that's good because I actually have a different X, but oh, great. I'll save that for next time. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so. It was the first one. I was like, I don't have to look this up. I know exactly yep. which I'm using. Um, and so, again, from a Greek word, and it means foreign rock. And this is sort of an thing you definitely see in igneous rocks a lot. And that's sort of when a rock fragment gets caught up in another, so a body of lava or magma, and it gets stuck in there. And so it's a foreign body, right? It didn't belong to that magma body or that wad of lava, but it gets stuck in there. And so we call those guys um, xenoliths. And they get erupted and geochemists prize them. 
Oh, yeah. Yeah, because it tells you something about the rocks that are surrounding, you know, the magma body that you're looking at. So right. you know that there's not only that rock that you're looking at down there, but there's also this other cool rock that happened to get stuck in it. And it's got a cool name, which is Xenolith. <laughs> yes. All right. Why? Had you heard of this one before? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Just because you've talked about it before. <laughs> Y is for Yardang. Uh, so yep. I, I, I must have been on a, a geomorphological feature kick. Uh, yeah. When yeah, I went through Nick these. Point, I mean, really. Uh, so <laughs> these are, they look kind of like boats. Uh, generally <laughs> found in the desert, like a, an upside down boat. I guess a boat that you wouldn't want to be on. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so... Uh, there are these features that are uh, generally soft sandstone rocks sticking out of the ground. They're almost flat in the direction of the wind, and then they taper off towards the back. And yeah. they are just these really uh, bold-looking formations <laughs> that are out in the <laughs> middle of nowhere. And they're, uh, they're from a Turkish word, uh, which the Turkish yar means steep bank or precipice. And that's yeah. what this is. It's a mini version of a precipice, I guess. Or, yeah. Right. Hmm. Um, yeah. So you'll see these a lot in the desert south as as well. And if you uh, look this up and just click images, you're like, oh, that. <laughs> yeah. So even if like the word is not common in your lexicon, you know what this formation looks like. You have probably seen them and called them an erosional feature. Yes, exactly. And gone on. <laughs> exactly. Um, okay, that one's hard to beat, so I'm not even going to try, but I really wish I would have picked Ziderfeld for Z, but we'll talk about that later. But I picked Zonation instead, because we were looking at a lot of thin sections this week, and yeah, this was stuck in my mind. Um, so Zonation, it can occur in a bunch of different minerals. I typically look at feldspars, so you see Zonation and feldspars, and it's just... As the crystal is growing, it gets, it just looks like it's got different zones. And that has to do with the changing either fluid compositions, generally, um, or even pressure and temperature changes that occur during the mineral formation, which causes these essentially tree rings yeah. to form in the minerals. Yeah, so it's exactly what it sounds like. And it can happen in a yep. lot of different minerals. And optically under the microscope, it can be very cool. Oh, yeah, there's some, this is some of the cool igneous minerals that have zonation is really neat looking and the zones can go extinct at different times if you're looking at it under cross polarized light. And so it looks like it's blinking. And um, yeah, it's really neat. But it also tells you a lot about how that mineral formed, which is, you know, often what we're trying to get a hold of is the, the story of the rock. So yeah, so no, I think that's a good one. And that is uh, our non wrapped alphabet aerobics. Uh, I, I just, I foresee this being, you know, we can do meteorology terms, just geoscience terms. This is a, this is a great thing. And it's sort of a fun, you know, you like to do your little brain cloud things, right? It's kind of a fun thing to get you thinking, you know, cause some of these that you picked, I would never have picked. And, um, I always forget what yard angs are. So, yeah. And it was a good, a good tour through thinking about just racking your brain for geological words that you probably haven't used in a long time. I, I don't know when the last time I said, ooh, it, it's probably when I took said pet. 
before which was we a did while this. ago so uh, yeah <laughs> uh no that's super that was super fun um and I had a nice segue back on V. If we had, would have stopped the alphabet there, we could have gone straight into everyone's favorite segment. Fun Paper Friday. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> so uh, you picked this week's fun paper, and it is a pretty good one. Uh, <laughs> so I like the subtitle here, Vampires and <laughs> the Continuity Equation. <laughs> yeah. Or it's just called The Draining of a Lifetime uh yeah also a great title um so <laughs> this is just a really short two-page paper and it is um by some students which is great um Sadra et al and it's in the journal of physics special topics and yeah so you don't get much from the title but it's basically <laughs> the three sentence abstract is how long does it take a vampire to drain a human of blood basically that was one sentence, but yeah. Uh, okay, yeah. Well, I wrapped so, it up, you know? <laughs> yeah. So this uh, did some very basic mathematical modeling, you know, all analytical solutions, like five equations. You can punch it in on a calculator. You don't need a fancy computer. Uh, <laughs> my, my calculator is a fancy computer now. <laughs> yeah. You, um, you, you could do this on your calculator watch. There's few enough right, times. Uh, there you go. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> uh, but... They just made some assumptions and tried to figure out how long it would take a vampire to drain some blood from you and not harm you. Uh, right. So I guess the number of 15%, a human can lose 15% of their blood before they start to go into cardiac arrest. So that's what they're trying to do is figure out how long it's going to take you to lose 15% of your blood through two vampire tooth-sized holes in your carotid artery. Yeah. And so there were some... Uh, there are some things in this paper that stunned me that I did not know about the human body. <laughs> so the aorta is the major blood gateway here. Right. And then it splits off several times. Uh, mm -hmm. I did not know. The aorta is four centimeters in diameter. That's huge. That's massive. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. So, yeah, there you go. Um, you have a four centimeter pipe of blood running through you. That's kind of terrifying. Uh, I think that's, you know, why when that bad boy gets cut, you're done for, right? I mean, yeah. that's a huge cross-sectional area. Yeah. <laughs> um, what I didn't know was that blood squirts out of you just due to ambient, you know, or just due to pressure differences at, what was it, five meters a second? Uh, yeah, it was pretty fast. So let's see, trying to find it here. If you assume a one atmosphere pressure outside... Uh, and your artery is roughly at 100 millimeters of mercury. Ooh, that's awful. Um, oh, I know. <laughs> <laughs> that part killed me a little bit. <laughs> yeah, 100 millimeters of mercury. Uh, let's see, you have... Yeah, so 0.6 meters a second flow in there. So yeah, five meters a second coming out of the neck up to. That's, that's... And that's just plugging into Bernoulli equation. Right, and that that's not pumped or anything at all, which they make sure in the conclusion to say this is not the vampire sucking, this is just him drinking at the regular speed your blood's going to come out. Now, one um, assumption in here I had a little bit of a problem with was that the vampire puncture marks were half of a millimeter in <laughs> diameter. Uh, I also spent some time looking at my teeth and looking at that stat as well. 
I mean, when you, when you see this in movies, which are clearly the defining oh, case yeah. for this, obviously, uh, we're not talking half millimeter <laughs> holes. <laughs> uh, yeah, that was uh, that was pretty funny. I thought too. <laughs> um, <laughs> but you know, who knows what kind of vampire it is? You don't know what all the vampires are out there. It's true, and I would say that if you were actually to bite somebody that might be along the lines of what you get right yeah that not true not with you know real fangs but <laughs> that's right <laughs> so i love that we're getting hung up not on their math or anything but on <laughs> their assumed cross-sectional area <laughs> right. of vampire fangs <laughs> and um <laughs> well so they made these assumptions, which are fine. They plugged it into these equations, which are relatively standard and simple fluid dynamics equations. Yep. Uh, and then came up with a number of 6.4 minutes with no vacuum force from the vampire uh, right. exactly. to drain 15%. And in, you know, normal weather too, right? It'd be a little bit lower or a little yeah, bit faster in a hurricane. Yeah. Um, so that's the amount of time it took to drain 0.75 liters of blood. So that's that 15%. So before you start to go into cardiac arrest, um, you've got 6.5 minutes since you get, or 6.4 minutes since you got bit by a vampire to take care of that. <laughs> yeah. And well, so I think they said that that's really before your heart rate starts changing. So you might right. not necessarily oh, yeah. go into full cardiac. Uh, that is true. Mm-hmm. But I guess, you know, they, they said that they did a sanity check, which I appreciate so much. Uh, <laughs> they said, well, this makes sense, considering it takes less than an hour to give 0.47 liters of blood donating from a vein. Right. So, so much smaller. Yeah, much smaller and di- lower pressure differential. Yep. So they at least did this sanity check and said, hey, we're not off by an order of magnitude here. Yes. Yeah, that is quite good. Uh, which is always impressive in student papers. <laughs> yes, absolutely true. Um, so I just thought this was this was kind of funny and cute and morbid. Um, <laughs> but it was a cool use of of uh, fluid dynamics. Cooler than, you know, looking at mesoscale atmospheric processes, maybe. Yeah, and I would say it certainly fits into the Journal of Physics on Special Topics. Exactly. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so... Before we we do our sign-off, I just want to remind folks, we didn't have any feedback for this week, but, which which means maybe we got nothing wrong. That's probably not the case. Uh, I would doubt it, but yeah. I'm going to move forward with that assumption. I like it. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I had the pleasure last week of co-hosting the Orbital Mechanics podcast because one of their hosts, Ben, was out of town. And so I co-hosted the show with David. We had a ton of fun talking about spaceflight and the SpaceX launch that has now happened. And the first mm. stage landed on the drone ship. Yeah. That it's, was amazing. It's amazing. Uh, so if you like spaceflight at all, which I'm guessing you do because everybody likes rockets, as the rocket <laughs> mortgage commercial says, uh, <laughs> then you should uh, go listen to that and just check out their podcast. It's a really fantastic show, and they're some great friends of ours. Uh, absolutely. Uh, you can always learn a lot. If you don't learn anything from us, you'll definitely learn it from the Orbital Mechanics. <laughs> yes, it's a very technical show. Yes. 
So with that, if you have anything that you would like to send us, your estimate of how long it would take to drain blood or what your approximate uh, vampire bite size would be, uh, <laughs> we'd like it if you send that in or if you decide to do your own alphabet aerobics. Shannon, how can they send that to us? Uh, please send us your thoughts, show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. Um, or if you just want to pick a couple of letters, you can always uh, shoot those geology terms over to us on Twitter at don'tpanicgeo. John is at geo underscore Lehman, and I am at Shannon Doolin. And until next week, remember, don't panic. Don't panic. It's not an exact science. <laughs> I started to panic. You were talking. <laughs> 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 I was like, whoa, what? what's happening? Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies. <laughs> <laughs>